Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This week's special episode features audio from a Manhattan Institute event featuring Charles Lehman, a fellow at MI and a contributing editor of City Journal, and Louis A. Molina, the commissioner of the Department of Corrections. We hope you enjoy. On a, on a slightly less cheery note, I want to talk a minute about New York City's jails, um, which most observers agree are in the middle of, have been struggling for a long time with uh, a level of crisis. Uh, 19 people died in Rikers custody last year, um, which is the deadliest year in roughly a decade. Uh, thousands are now diverted from pretrial detention every day. Um, as proponents argue, the jails are dangerous and criminogenic, and opponents of these policies say the streets become less safe. Uh, the jail system has been subject to a federal monitoring agreement for over a decade with looming debate over whether or not a federal takeover is necessary. The city, meanwhile, is cruising ahead with plans to close the Rikers complex and dramatically slash uh, total jail capacity below where it has ever been at any point uh, since the Rikers complex opened. Into this maelstrom was thrust our guest, uh, Commissioner of Correction, Luis A. Molina, uh, who was appointed to his post by Merrick Adams when the latter took office in 2022. Uh, previously, Commissioner Molina was chief of the city of Las Vegas' Department of Public Safety, first deputy commissioner for the Westchester County Department of Correction, and chief, uh, chief internal monitor and acting assistant commissioner of the Nunez Compliance Unit of NYC DOC. So with a diverse law enforcement background and experience both in making the system work and making the system work better, uh, it's a little surprise that the new mayor went to the commissioner to try to solve what has been for many an unsolvable problem. Um, now, indeed, Commissioner Molina oversees one of the nation's most scrutinized jail systems in a moment of unprecedented upheaval and controversy. Tonight, we're going to talk about the past, present, and future of New York City's jails. Commissioner, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into sort of weighty topics, I want to I start with you. Um, you've worked across the criminal justice system, as I alluded to, in corrections, in policing, here in New York City, as far afield as Las Vegas. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this work and how you came to the role of DOC commissioner. Yeah, I think for me, um, over the 20 years of, of my professional career, I've had some great opportunities in working in what I would describe as the three main pillars of our criminal justice system. I worked in the NYPD for over 13 years. After my stint in the NYPD, I was the deputy chief investigator for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office when Kenneth Thompson was then the DA. After that, in 2016, was my first foray into corrections. As you pointed out, I was the chief internal monitor that was selected for the New York City Department of Corrections at that time. After my time in the New York City Department of Corrections, after that, I was then appointed the first deputy commissioner for the Westchester County Department of Corrections, which I would point out um, to listeners and those that are here in the audience was also under a federal oversight agreement. And we were able to successfully navigate out of that oversight agreement within three years of my appointment and the appointment of Joseph Spano, who was a commissioner and a longtime executive deputy commissioner of operations, Leandro Diaz, we successfully really transformed the Westchester County DOC. After that, as you said, I was appointed the chief of the Department of Public Safety, overseeing the city of Las Vegas and city marshals, city's jails, as well as the animal control services. So, you know, I bring a full sort of national view on many of these issues, on experiences from across our criminal justice system. 
when Mayor Adams was elected mayor, um, he appointed me to, and asked me to be the commissioner for the city's Department of Corrections. I knew then that with Mayor Adams' leadership, his commitment to wanting to solve a number of complex issues the city was facing today, um, for me, it was a no-brainer and an easy decision to come back. New York City is my hometown. I've always believed that the staff at the Department of Corrections, as well as the people that are in the custodial care of the city's jail system deserve better. So I was excited to accept the appointment of commissioner for the Department of Corrections in New York City. So I just want to linger for a second on, on your past experience in Westchester in particular, because I think part of the reason that you were brought into New York City is because you had prior experience navigating a federal consent decree and really turning a jail system around. Can you talk about what that experience was like, what you saw as the successes and failures there, and how that informs your thinking today? So I think Westchester County at the time when I started had similar-like challenges to New York City, but the scale of the problem in New York City was significantly greater. The one pivotal difference, I think, between what was going on in Westchester County and what's currently going on here in the city is that everybody in Westchester County wanted the Department of Corrections to succeed. The advocacy groups, the defense bar, our elected officials, um, the family of the incarcerated, they were all behind a lot of the initiatives and strategies that helped us really turn around Westchester County's Department of Corrections using a lot of different programmatic initiatives and also increasing the access to justice to those that were justice involved in our system. So let's let's turn then to New York City, um, which is, you know, obviously a analogous sort of, I, I would venture to claim a bigger fish. Um, not that Westchester is small, but, you know, it's New York City. Um, Obviously, as I alluded to, Rikers has been struggling and the New York City jail system has been mm -hmm. struggling since before you took office. Um, you worked on compliance with the Nunez yeah. decree, uh, the, the federal consent decree under which the jail system is still operating. Can you talk us about, can you talk us about, talk us to us about the history? Um, how did the jails get to be where they are? Yeah, so I think when we, when we look at the, the city system, um, I think that for, well, first, let me just say that for decades, the city's jail system was very was neglected and, and mismanaged for decades. I think specifically to the issue that we're faced with today, there were three distinct decisions that put us on a pathway to the brink of collapse January 1st of 2022. Um, and those three instances and decision points were first, in 2016 to 2017, when I was a chief internal monitor, I quickly realized that we needed an infusion of outside correctional experts that needed to be in the chain of command of the system to help guide the department out of its disorder. When that recommendation that I made at that time was not adhered to, and I think, you know, you get this in, in big bureaucracies, it was basically stopped and bureaucratized to death, that that decision at that time, um, had they followed my recommendation, I think we would not be in the state that we are today. So that's the first, I think, domino to happen between 2016 and 17. When we go to 2018 and 2019, when the decision was made uh, to close Rikers Island, the department was basically abandoned. There was always an underfunding of our infrastructure on Rikers Island to include our borough facilities at the time. There was an underfunding in the support and investment in our, in our human capital, our staff. So when the decision was made to close Rikers Island, the department was literally abandoned and the system was significantly weakened 
leading to the attrition of thousands of correctional officers out of the system. The third domino, which was, I think, you know, the most critical is having already had a very weakened system in the city, what ended up happening when the COVID pandemic hit on multiple levels, the department just imploded. And on top of that implosion from the COVID pandemic, which affected obviously the globe, there was intentional decisions to dismantle the detainee capacity within Rikers Island and the broad-based jails facilities, which put us at a significant disadvantage. And I think the dismantling of a core part of our criminal justice system in this city, that decision was intentionally made so that Rikers Island would close by any means necessary, despite the risk that it posed to people in custody and the staff that work there. I just I just want to ask you to elaborate a little bit on that last point. Um, when you talk about a, a deliberate dismantling, what 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 do you see as having gone on? What are the what are the components Certainly. that were dismantled, and who were the driving forces? Yeah. So we had functional facilities that are on Rikers Island that were closed, mm-hmm. significantly reducing our capacity to be able to house individuals, and eliminating that capacity even to this day to be accessible, as the detainee population continues to have steadily increased since January first of twenty twenty two. In addition to the, the dismantling of our borough facilities in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn, simultaneously eliminating that capacity as well. So it seems to me like there are a number of different problems that are commonly identified on Rikers Island, um, and I want to talk through a couple of them. Sure. The first one is uh, just sort of absolute, I mean, the, the, the scale of deaths in custody generally, mm-hmm. which is related to problems we'll get to in a second, which is violence. Um, but it also relates to access to drugs mm-hmm. and also suicide. Mm-hmm. Can you talk through what you see as driving the increase in deaths uh, that we've seen over the past several years? What are the what are the sources of the problem? So I think there's a couple. I think you know we don't have enough inpatient psychiatric capacity in this city to deal with those that are experiencing mental illness and in many cases co-occurring disorders of substance abuse addiction. So the department ends up getting a lot of individuals that have significant pre-existing health and mental health conditions coming into the system. Um, And we have limited capability to support that vulnerable population. When I got there in January 1st of 2022, there were were no basic correctional security practices that were happening. So we started to address those issues. We've uh, removed over 5,000 contraband weapons from the facilities over 1,300 contraband narcotics and narcotics paraphernalia from the facilities. Programming at that point in January of last year had had stopped. So contract nonprofit providers were not coming into the system because the former administration had told them they did not want them working on Rikers Island at that time. So you had a lot of out of time with the people that were in custody. So it had a rippling effect throughout the system. So when you're managing these vulnerable populations, what we have been done as of late is to mitigate against all those things. So in addition to removing contraband narcotics and weapons, we began bringing in programmatic uh, programs, education, vocational, substance abuse support programs into the facilities with our partners at Correctional Health Services. We've worked with the faith-based community to come and partner us to provide services to the population. We began to interdict against narcotics coming into the facility specifically through the mail. We saw a 26% increase in 2022 of contraband narcotics coming in through the mail. If we just look at fentanyl alone, the increase of interdiction of of fentanyl was over 290% in 2022. So I think a combination of those issues 
um, places the, the population at risk. But we, we're head and shoulders in a different place today, 15 months later than where we were at the beginning of last year when it relates to violence and other issues to stop the, the opportunities that people may take in order whether they're using drugs and may end up in a fatal overdose. The other thing that we've done is we've expanded the accessibility of Narcan in the facility. We've trained almost 6,000 uniform officers to be able to use Narcan. And soon Narcan will be carried on every uniform officer in our facilities to prevent individuals from overdosing. Um, one of the one of the underlying trends that we've seen over the past, really at this point, seven, eight years is the New York City jail population in steady decline since 2016. And that decline reversed starting in 2020, still well below the levels uh, the, the city was at when the city council made the decision to start talking about closing Rikers. Um, you know, I think part of what has happened there is that the population has become more concentrated in A, serious offenders, and B, offenders have been evaluated as uh, in need of mental health services. Mm -hmm. um, does that pose, does that concentration pose additional challenges that you have, you know, a smaller but on average more dangerous population? Absolutely. So in 2015, about 50% of our populations were charged with felonies and 50% were charged with misdemeanors. Um, currently, as it stands today, when we look at our population, 83% of our populations is charged with at least one felony. In addition to we have city census individuals that are charged with levels of low, low felonies or misdemeanor crimes. So as you pointed out, we do have a much more higher concentration of violent offenders, but those violent offenders are also in our system significantly longer than necessary. So we looked at our length of stay prior to COVID. Our average length of stay was about 83 days, which already was a really the longest length of stay when you look at large American jails in America. During COVID, that length of stay increased to about 140. Now we're approximately settling about 115 days. But what we have is a situation where the length of stay for very violent offenders is too long. We have had approximately 500 people in custody that have been in our system for over two years and another almost 800 that have been in there for one to two years. The length of stay is also a contributing factor to this situation. And as, as you point out, the population steadily has been increasing. But interestingly enough, we are experiencing a situation for our staff as we take hold and stabilize operations. As our population has been increasing, the use of force incidences in 2022 so a 14% decrease. And the department has never experienced a situation where the population was going up and use of force incidences were going down. Ironically, between 2016 and 2021, while the population was shrinking, the rate and the number of use of force incidences were climbing. Um, so we are taking a hold of things like that within the department. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there to-, to Sure. This question is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I want to I want to ask about another component that's gotten a lot of attention, um, which is staffing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's been a, there's been a great deal of concern, particularly about uh, policies relating to uh, sick or disability leave, mm -hmm. uh, and more generally that uh, there's a, there's a, a lack of CO presence in the facilities, which is contributing to violence or lack of oversight. Was that your impression of the situation going in? And what does the situation look like today? Yeah, so going in, you know, the department did not have an organizational health strategy to support staff, to include consciously eliminating employee assistance programs to support staff prior to this administration taking over. At the height of January 1st, 
we had on average over 2,600 uniform staff that were out sick, um, which is a significant amount of staff. We had already also attrited 2,000 correction officers from the department at that point in time in January 1st, 2022. We did a lot of work to support our staff. Um, there was no accountability in place. So when we think about um, managing any type of organization and you're trying to address individuals that don't meet the standards of your expectations, you have to have timely and a meaningful discipline process. On January 1st, this administration inherited over 3,700 disciplinary cases that went unaddressed going all the way back to 2017. So there was just no accountability on the part of the staff, but there was also no accountability on those that were detained. So what he had individuals that were in our custody committing serious crimes on other persons in custody, on members of the staff, there was no accountability. Our restrictive housing model at that point in time was ineffective. Um, and slashing and stabbings at that point in time in January 1st of 2022 had already reached an increase of 300%. Where we are at today with the support of staff, investing in our staff, the staff absentee rate has dropped 69%. In, in real numbers, that means that on any average day, just under 700 people are out sick. So with accountability measures in place, we, I have adjudicated over 2,800 disciplinary cases so that one, for those that had issues that needed to be addressed, we use them as teachable moment. Sometimes there's a punitive punishment that comes with that, but we want somebody to be able to perform at an expectation that we have. Others, we identify this wasn't the right career choice for them and they were separated from the department. So now we have a more timely and meaningful discipline process and all that together has allowed us to bring back visitation, programming, allowed us to get to a point where fiscal year to date, the slashing and stabbings have decreased 10% um, in, 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 uh, in the jail system. So we still have a long way to go, but a lot, we are in a much different place 15 months in than where we were on January 1st. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so let's, we've talked a lot about already about sort of steps that you've taken concretely to try to turn the situation around, mm -hmm. but can you give us a sense of what your, what your overall strategy was walking in? What is the, what is the sort of ethos or approach mm -hmm. that inspires how you're thinking about dealing with these problems? Yeah. So I think when we're talking, when we're thinking about the challenges that exist in our department, I think any story of the current turnaround that's taking place at the New York City Department of Corrections starts with the Robert and Davern Center, which is also known as RNDC. That facility is managed by a very experienced uniform warden, Charlisa Walker, who's done an amazing job of turning around that specific facility. And what I'll say is that at the first quarter of 2022, it was the most violent facility on Rikers Island. We have 800 detainees housed there. But what's unique about the Robert and Davern Center is about over 400 of our young adults, 18 to 21, are housed at that facility. We developed with our cabinet, working in concert with the monitor, a violence reduction strategy that was multi-pronged. We brought back program services, both vocational and educational services, to the population there. We went back to the basics of security practices and held people accountable to make sure that they were instituted. We partnered with a number of faith-based leaders, um, particularly one that stands out as Pastor Tim Johnson from Orlando, Florida, who brought his Fatherless No More initiative and had an amazing impact on the young adults that are housed at that facility. In addition to that, we brought incredible messengers, violence interrupters, 
It was a multi-pronged strategy where fiscal year to date, today, that facility slashing and stabbings have decreased almost 60% to include addressing a lot of the infrastructure failures that were existed, not at only that facility and others, but we replaced cell doors at that facility. We replaced windows to make sure that detainees didn't have access to ailing infrastructure to create crime and weapons. Now we've replicated a number of initiatives that we've done at RNDC across our system. And that's why the total system fiscal year to date, slashing and stabbings are down 10%. But what's also significantly down across the system is assaults on staff. Staff need a safe place to work and assaults on staff across the system has also decreased over 40% fiscal year to date. When you wanna help have interventions for people that are in our custody to address the root drivers of their justice involvement, you can't do that without having a foundation of safety and security. For both the people that are in custody, the people that work there, our contract providers and volunteers that wanna deliver these services. So we've done that at the Robert and Davern Center. That strategy is being replicated across our system. And I think it's gonna have, we're gonna be in a significant better place at the end of this fiscal year than when we started January 1st of 22. So I wanna talk a little bit about sort of the two big uh, policy changes that are on the table. Um, one being the still slated to occur closure of the Rex facility that moved to the Burbank jail. The other one, the live debate about federal receivership. Um, start with the latter. We talk a little bit about the federal monitor um, as we've alluded to throughout this conversation. Uh, the uh, Department of Correction remains under a federal consent decree as a monitor that oversees operations and issues regular reports. Commissioner worked in compliance for compliance with the monitor. Um, recently, the monitor gave you all an extension. Said we're going to come back to we're going to come back to court. Uh, I believe in April. April, yeah. Yeah, to reconsider the question of federal receivership. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about how that decision got made, and then we'll also talk about the pros and cons of receivership, what that fight has been about. Got it. So, you know, our monitor is Stephen Martin. The deputy monitor is Anna Friedberg. I've known them since 2016, as I worked with them when I was with the department at time. The monitor and his deputy have been overseeing the department for a number of years, and they have a keen sense of the challenges that exist in the department. I think first for the public, you know, the monitor's job is not to fix the New York City Department of Corrections. That is my job to do. The monitor's role is really to evaluate our success in uh, meeting the consent provisions and our um, compliance in those provisions so that at some point he would be in a position to recommend to the courts that we've done everything to satisfy what placed the department in a consent judgment and move us on from that. But the monitor has been a great partner with us. He and his, his subject matter experts have collectively hundreds of years of correctional management experience. That wealth of experience we have access to, and there is a lot of value to that. So I often consult um, with the monitor and think about different strategies and ideas before we operationalize them to make sure that as a department, we're headed down the right track. He, in his recent reports, has talked about seeing a sea change in the way the department has been managed as of recently um, than what's been his experience of the past. And the reason we have that sheet change is because we've built out a magnificent and amazing cabinet. That cabinet represents talent from inside and outside of New York City. And what we have infused into the cabinet was a recommendation that I made in 2016 of bringing in correctional expertise 
that's within the chain of command of the department has the authority to take action so that we can have sustainable reform. So um, the, the, my relationship with the monitor is very healthy and respectful. They have been a good partner, but he has a job to do. And his job is really evaluating our compliance with not only the consent judgment provisions, currently now also our action plan, and it's my job to fix the department. So the, 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 op the option on the table that's, I think, been pushed for in a number of quarters mm -hmm. is taking the, taking the department out of the hands of the government of New York City and putting it under the jurisdiction of the federal government, um, a, a receiver appointed by the court, um, who would have a number of powers that you would not necessarily have, um, for example, to uh, cut through uh, limitations imposed by contract. Mm -hmm. um, your department has obviously been skeptical of receivership. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm going to ask you for your take on it, but you know, what, what do you see as the pros and cons? Mm -hmm. um, and is there a point at which you would say, yes, this makes sense? Yeah, so I'm not uh, in favor of receivership for any jurisdiction, um, not just New York City's. Um, I think receivers um, take a lot of time. We've seen a history of receiverships lasting 10 years. They cost the taxpayers of the local municipalities significant amounts of money and really the lack of understanding of the governance process within the jurisdiction that they're in puts them at a significant learning disadvantage on coming in from the outside to sort of rectify these problems. I will say that there is nothing in any union collective bargaining agreement that prevents me from addressing these issues. These are manufactured problems because of mismanagement, a history of mismanagement that has been facing the department for a number of decades. We have a mayor of this city whose leadership and commitment to solve this issue breaks down a lot of, I think, manufactured barriers that were previously identified as stopping us from being able to move the department forward. We are just in not that place under this administration. And at the speed of which we are solving a number of systemic issues regarding the department, a receivership would take significant amount of time to build out a team, to learn the ecosystem of the department that would put us at a significant disadvantage if the department went on receivership. But it's all it's my job, along with my cabinet's job, to make sure that we can provide Judge Swain, who's the judge overseeing the consent judgment, the confidence that we have the ability to do this. Um, I think that she's has seen sparks of hope. Um, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think she too sees that we are progressing in a direction that's going to be much more rapid than if a receivership motion practice were to move forward, which we think would be highly unsuccessful, given the significant inroads that we have made to date over the last 15 months. Yeah, so let's start with the other um, more set in stone plan. Uh, 2027, ostensibly, the facilities on Rikers Island will be shuttered. Uh, the city will shift all of its jail capacity to four borough-based jails, uh, maximum uh, average jail population, 3,300 people um, built in the boroughs, under construction now, in fact. Uh, the city council seems full steam ahead on this, as they were in 2019. Both you and the mayor have expressed some concerns. I think it was the mayor who said, maybe it's you, I forget, but I think both of you have said, maybe we need to think about a plan B for Rikers closure. Um, let's start with the prospects for closing Rikers. Do you think it's, you know, do you think the timeline is plausible? 
Yeah, probably so, four years now. Yeah, so I've already been public. I mean, right now we've crossed in January 30th of this year um, over 6,000 people in custody, and we've been hovering just over and just under 6,000 people. We have done some population forecast analysis, and if nothing changes in the administration of justice, then we predict that we will be at a 7,000 person incarcerated population by September of 2024. So just I think we have to think about when we're thinking about forcibly by local law closing Rikers Island and eliminating all that capacity, it is no different than what I would call um, a similar example would be the deinstitutionalization strategy of the mentally ill out of um, mental, mental health um, capacity that we had in America. And what we saw during that process is people that were mentally ill and deinstitutionalized from those situations found themselves in a situation of, of trans-institutionalization where psychiatric hospitals and criminal justice systems were interdependent. That was a disaster for not only the people in need, but really because of underfunded community resources, had a community violence that, that rose and was disastrous for our communities. So if we're going to displace upwards of 3,000 or so people that are better served um, because of their violence in um, a correctional setting, I think that's a very dangerous situation for communities across the city and a dangerous situation for public safety as well. So I think that if we, we're gonna move forward with the bro-based jail plan, we have to be responsible in sharing with the public what the impact of that plan is. And I share a lot of the values that came out of the Lipman Commission regarding that plan. But if we are immovable from thinking about how can we evolve the plan to serve the current population that's in custody, the future population that may be in custody, we will find that the intentions of everything that the Lipman Commission wanted will be a failure because we will either have overcrowding in our broad-based jails facilities, we may have to reopen decommissioned facilities that quite frankly, from a physical infrastructure standpoint, don't meet the needs of that population that's in custody. Um, some people need government intervention. Um, we have over a thousand individuals in our custody that are charged with murder and manslaughter. Um, and, and people need um, to be safe in our communities. So this deinstitutionalizing of detainees from our city's jail system is a very dangerous proposition if we move forward. So the, the Living Commission, the, the, the commission which uh, was chartered to investigate and ultimately recommended the closure of Rikers Island, um, the Living Commission has, since its initial report, argued that with some number of changes, uh, the capacity the capacity afforded by the borough's jails would be adequate. Um, you've alluded to some of their concerns, like uh, the, the length of stay. Yeah. So if we lower mean length of stay, we'd have a smaller average jail population. Um, do you think that there is a there's a world in which the borough-based jails are adequate capacity? Is there uh, are there some set of steps that could be taken, if not by DOC, then by the courts or by uh, some other component of the criminal justice system? I think there are some steps that could be taken, but the reality is, if you want to solve this issue, we have to think about the entirety of the criminal justice arena. And the reality is, is that the city, in and of itself, don't control the Office of Court Administration, which is the courts. We have elected district attorneys. We don't control them either. We have a, a number of, of, of criminal justice reform laws 
that are impacting our length of stay situation. Um, so I think that in theory, there are pathways to try to do that, but we have to deal in practical reality. And when we're thinking about how do we evolve and reform parts of our criminal justice system, specifically in corrections, if we are not going to be guided by scientific knowledge of correction management, good intentions are not enough. And at some point, we have to realize that what are we willing to risk when we're talking about the public safety of the almost 9 million residents of this city? Parents just want their kids to be able to get on a bus, get on a train, and walk to school and not be accosted by violent individuals. If you want to solve the criminal justice issue in America or in this city in particular, then what should have been solved first was increasing our inpatient psychiatric bed capacity for those that can be diverted into a public health system to address their drivers of crime, whether it's mental illness or substance abuse addiction. We don't solve that issue first. The reality is, is that the criminal justice system, whether we're talking about policing or correction, is the only system that currently exists that has the agility to deal with this population that's creating a significant number of disorder and placing a lot of members in public in unsafe situations. So I want to just sort of to, to, to draw the conversation out to something that you brought up a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, you alluded to, for example, working in Westchester, you felt like all the community stakeholders wanted the DOC to work. Mm -hmm. um, my impression of, of course, the conversation is you don't necessarily think that's what's happening here, um, mm -hmm. that there is some degree of adversarialism uh, or that, that there, are, there are actors that are uh, not necessarily interested in seeing DOC succeed. Um, and you said also that you know the the jail system was left to operate in uh, disarray um, certainly since 2020, quite plausibly longer. Um, I wonder if you could talk about uh, you know who who you see as the actors there, what you see as the motives there that are driving this contention, and how important you see that as being to uh, to what extent that affects the success and failure of DSA. Yeah, no, that's it's a great point, and I think that. Our correctional systems, our jail systems challenges are not a place-based problem. It is a system problem. And what we need is to address the systematic system failures that exist within our system. And that's what the Adams administration is doing now as we rebuild back this department. We also need to understand that, I've said this before, for too long, slogans, have dictated criminal justice policy. And in corrections, in addition to slogans, anecdotal incidents have been used as a method to say the symbolism of closing Rikers, it's what's gonna stop this issue. Dismantling our jail system's capacity is not gonna solve the systemic problems that we have. We're running a humane and just system in New York City or any jail system in America. We need an all-in proposition so when we're thinking about, like I said earlier, about how do we evolve and address these longstanding criminal justice issues, we have to first solve how do we increase the, the capacity for health access for those that are suffering from mental illness and substance abuse addiction. We need all the elected officials. I think we all share um, the belief that we should have a humane and just system and that those that are being driven to the justice system because of mental health and substance abuse addiction should be diverted. But we need that diversion capacity to exist. Um, and I think understanding that 
We have to govern in what's in the best interest of this city. We need to be good partners. We need to be more than just have shared interest in this problem. We need to be allies to solve these issues. We cannot solve these issues alone. Well, so, but it, just to just, just to just to push on the point a little bit, um, let me offer an example. Uh, a few months back, the city council waited to dramatically curtail the use of solitary confinement uh, in DOC custody. Um, in a way, in my reading of the bill, and I think I suspect in your reading of the bill, you disagree, um, would have rendered solitary confinement essentially inoperable. Uh, on Rikers Island as a as a tool, not simply for uh, uh, dealing with inmates violating the rules, but dealing with inmates who are actively violent, um, offenders who were actively posing a threat to one another and to staff. Um, and it seems to me like there's a I don't know a force on the city council that routinely makes this sort of policy move that says, well, we need to be concerned with the rights of offenders, and in so doing, we'll make the jails less safe, and that's our priority. Do you think that there is a it seems to me like many people, I, I, everybody views the health and justice need to be a priority, but there are different theories of what justice in a correctional context looks sure. like. Um, do you think Do you think that's right? And if so, to what extent are you having to deal with an alternative theory? Yeah. So first I'll just say, we do not practice solitary confinement um, within the New York City's Department of Correctional System. We don't even practice punitive um, in any way, any type of punitive segregation as well within our system, which means in a solitary confinement definition, that you would only be allowed one hour out of your cell in punitive segregation, that would be anywhere from one to four hours out of cell. So in our restrictive housing model, individuals are voluntarily allowed to be released from their cell for up to seven hours at minimum, if they so choose to do so. So as it relates specifically to the solid, to banning of solitary confinement, one is there were, there were provisions within that law that really would have removed any level of restrictive housing from our city's jail system. Now we have to understand that within the state of New York, we have significantly amount of out of cell time. In New York City, that out of cell time is 14 hours. In other parts of the states, it's anywhere from 12 to 14 hours, which means that we have a lot of violent individuals that are out of cell, many of them choosing not to engage in any programming to address the root drivers of their justice involvement and we have a higher level of opportunity for people to commit violence against other people in custody and staff. When I get lectured about, you should be like Cook County in the city of Chicago, we have about the same size detainee population in Chicago. In Chicago, general population detainees have out of cell time of six hours. In Washington, DC, and in the city of Philadelphia, it is five hours. And in those jurisdictions, they also do practice very restrictive punitive segregation. So when I'm lectured by elected officials and others about Cook County and the cities of Chicago, we don't have the same operating rules in this state and in this city as we do in the city of Chicago and in other jurisdictions, which invites a lot of opportunity for violence to take place. So the only thing that we have left are two. We need restrictive housing, and I'm happy to announce that we've redeveloped our restrictive housing so that those that are committing serious violent crimes about, against other persons in custody or staff can be housed in a humane way to keep others that are in general population that just want to get through their time until their case is adjudicated can live in, in, in safety. And our workers can be safe as well. Our uniform staff 
and our non-uniform staff. So stopping any level of restrictive housing in our city's jail system would be disastrous to our city's jail system and would spike violence across our system at an unprecedented rate. Thank you. Let's everyone give the commissioner a round of applause you. again. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank all of you for joining us as well. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.